Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Dive, the podcast that asks who said business news needs to be all business. I'm your host, Sasha Kelly. On the 18th of September, Michelle Bullock stepped up to take over as the RBA governor from Dr. Philip Lowe. Ms Bullock has worked at the central bank since 1985 and will be the first woman to lead it. The Prime Minister says she's the right person to steer the bank into the future. She begins her term at a time when the RBA and their decisions on interest rates are very closely watched by the nation, which isn't really a surprise when we think about how central home ownership is to the Australian dream. But alongside this, there's changes afoot. The government is in the process of reshaping the RBA and Bullock herself has identified three brewing pressures on our financial system. It's Monday, the 2nd of October, and today I want to know who is Michelle Bullock and what will the RBA look like under her stewardship? To talk about this today, I'm joined by Jennifer Duke, who's economics correspondent at Capital Brief. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Jennifer, Michelle Bullock was appointed as the RBA governor, taking over from Philip Lowe, who was a man who was in many headlines over the last couple of years. The Reserve Bank's charter was written in 1959. It's broader than the charter of most other central banks. It's got three key elements. The Reserve Bank is responsible for low and stable inflation, for full employment, and promoting the general welfare of the Australian people. Can you introduce us to the woman who's now at the head of the Reserve Bank of Australia? I will try my best. So she's actually the first woman in the RBA's history take on this role, which um, personally I think is pretty incredible, having covered a lot of men in senior <laughs> positions at all of our financial institutions. So to talk a bit about Michelle, so I'll start with a bit of the colour because we all love a bit of someone's actual human background. So she was actually born in Melbourne, but she spent most of her life in country areas, Armadale in particular. And she was going to study medicine, if I remember rightly. She's going to study medicine originally and then switched into economics when she realised that it suited her better, which I think we're all very thankful for. And then she moved straight from university to the Reserve Bank and is is what we call an RBA lifer, which a lot of them (laughs) tend to be. And she's pretty much been there ever since being like an intern. She did some more study there and she's kind of moved up through the ranks. She was deputy governor before she's become governor. She took over from Guy DeBell when he left to Fortescue. And she was in several different assistant governor roles before that, including, I think it was for financial stability, areas like that. So she spent a long time within the institution. Um, she's mm. incredibly level-headed. When I interviewed Jim Chalmers for a piece a while back in Capital Brief, he was describing her as ticking all of the boxes for them because she has this huge backlog of economics information in her mind, but she's also very level-headed. She presents really well when she goes up in front of the Senate estimates, things like that. So yeah, really interesting person. Lovely to see a woman at the helm and quite similar to Philip Lowe in her, I would say, the way that she presents. But I've been told that she's a very different thinker to Philip, which I think is yet to kind of bear out. And we'll see that as she continues on in her role. Yeah. As you said, only took the helm on the 18th. So not a huge amount of time for us to (laughs) see that difference of thinking, but really curious. And obviously Tuesday is when they're going to make the first announcement with her at the helm. So we'll get to that in just a moment. 
You do write that her seven-year tenure as governor will ultimately be judged, and I think we can all agree with this sentiment, on the economic welfare of Australians, all of us. And that's why it's pertinent to kind of reflect on Bullock the person and what she said previously. And she's spoken publicly about her learnings from the GFC, which is obviously a crisis in the rearview mirror for a lot of us that we remember acutely. When she took her last position as assistant governor of the Reserve Bank in 2017, her maiden speech elaborated on her learnings from that time or the learnings that she wanted to address. And she spoke to three potential sources of systemic risk. What are they and what do you think this tells us about the future direction and kind of picks up on that thread of her being a different thinker? I think that's right. Look, first of all, I'm going to rewind a little bit because I like to remind people, as you did, about the RBA's mandate. So at least right now, it is to contribute to the stability of the Australian currency, full employment, and yes, the economic prosperity and welfare of all of us, thankfully. <laughs> and it has some really prominent and specific targets to achieve that. The one we all know very much about is that 2 to 3% inflation target bracket. But the economic prosperity and welfare piece is much more complicated and financial stability is like really ingrained in what that means. Now, at the moment, the RBA has been going through this review process. There's some legislation coming and that might actually change what the RBA's focus is and the economic welfare piece could be one of those aspects that changes. I would say that personally, I think that's an incredibly important thing for the RBA to continue focusing on. And I would hope that even if it's taken out of its sort of written down mandate, that some sort of vein of that continues through. Mm. So yes, back in that speech that she did, there were these three things. She was speaking 10 years on from the GFC and sort of reflecting about what the Reserve Bank had learnt and some of the kind of risks that were growing again, I suppose, in that space. And the first one on that list was financial technology and the growth of the fintech sector. The second one uh, was general misconduct, which seems to be an ongoing risk all the time. And the third one was climate-related financial disclosures. She didn't go into a huge amount of detail into each of those three um, because they were kind of global discussions she was having with other regulators. But it's pretty clear from her speech that she did since then. She has done one since she's been announced as governor. And that one was all about climate risk and all mm. about the issues that they're having as the Reserve Bank and the way that she's thinking about that transition and the different aspects that we'll have on businesses and households. So clearly that's a major one. And obviously technology is pretty much all that anyone talks about. So that one's still kicking around as well. So they, they were the three things. And I also think like the climate risk one, maybe that is an aspect of her changing the way that she thinks is different to Philip because we didn't hear Philip Lowe talk that much about climate risk in the way that Michelle's already kind of come in yelling about this issue um, in a really powerful way. And I think in a way that people can actually understand and relate to. She's sort of talking about transition risk, but also the opportunities with the with net zero. So I think that is one aspect that shows her different level of thinking. Yeah. So the primary kind of point that she's picking up on in the climate risk is the transition risk, or is there any other thinking that you can elaborate on there? Yeah. So part of it's definitely transition risk. The other part is around the volatility aspect that's going to have on pricing and on inflation and therefore how hard it is for the Reserve Bank to then be setting interest rates in that environment. So that's um, clearly playing into their minds an awful lot because right now we've got all these kind of global impacts that we're seeing affect uh, interest rates and inflation in ways that are really hard for them to actually control. We're seeing interest rates going up. Mm. Inflation is kind of moderating, but a lot of that isn't to do with anything we're actually doing in Australia. So that's, that's tricky. And when you then add climate to the top of that, it's like, is our current system fit for purpose? They think that it is, but that it's going to be challenged. Mm. You added as well in your piece that we could add housing affordability and the weak Australian dollar as other systemic risk points. Is that kind of 
dovetailing or, or wrapping up into the um, economic well-being of Australians. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, housing, gosh, it's such a huge issue. So every single economist that I speak to is like housing affordability is the big topic right now. Everyone's concerned. I always say it's been a big topic for a long time. Anyone who's in their like 20s, 30s, even 40s now is like feeling that pain of, of housing affordability. And clearly to me, particularly if that economic welfare aspect stays within the RBA's mandate, they have to start thinking a lot more about housing affordability and their role in that debate and even in jostling for some change at a federal level. We all know the RBA is very independent from government, but it would be nice to hear them be a little bit more outspoken on that issue in the way that they're becoming about climate. We're going to take a short break, but when I return, I'm going to ask Jennifer what's next for interest rates as the RBA is meeting tomorrow. And also we'll delve into the government's plan for a new and improved RBA. Stay with me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We are aiming to bring inflation back to target with a slightly longer period than other countries overseas. And in many ways, it might be much easier just to jack up interest rates because interest rates overseas are higher than they are here in Australia. Welcome back to The Dive. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Duke, economics correspondent from Capital Brief. Jennifer, the RBA, they're meeting for the first time under Michelle's stewardship tomorrow, first Tuesday of the month, to discuss their decisions around interest rates, whether they keep the cash rate the same. What are most economists expecting for the remainder of 2023? Oh, so this one's this one's really tough because the forecasts change all the time. So it's, it's <laughs> constantly, second we get new data in, we've got some critical inflation data coming. Every time that happens, everyone kind of readjusts their expectations. At the moment, the markets are kind of currently pricing in about one more rate rise for 24. But most of the top economists that I speak to reckon that there's no more rate rises really coming and that 4.1%, which we're currently at, is probably the peak. Of the four kind of big banks, CBA, Westpac and ANZ from memory all think we're at peak, I think NAB reckons there's maybe one more rate rise to go. So last time I checked their forecast, they were saying maybe we'll peak at about 4.35%, which suggests one more 25 basis point increase whenever that might be. Mm. But we are in this very kind of uncertain period at the moment. So it's all kind of hinging on what's going to happen with inflation data. Petrol price is going to push that up, what's happening with energy prices. And it's quite foggy. But from my experience writing about interest rates, the second you get to that point where there's all this disagreement from economists, that's probably a good indicator that we're at peak because normally everyone's (laughs) pushing in the same direction saying, here's our like pre-commentary for a rate rise today. At the moment, we're starting to get in his commentary in case there's a rate cut and a rate rise and rates on hold. And it's like, that's a good sign that maybe we're uh, we're reaching that peak point. And that's an interesting um, peak behind the curtain there. <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, Bullock is a different thinker. And even though she's an RBA lifer, she might represent a bit of change to the RBA. But that's not the only change that she's kind of heralding in because the government has also announced a review and a process of reshaping the RBA. They're introducing an additional monetary policy board. They're changing the way the RBA communicates with the media and the public, which I think is a really interesting point 
post-COVID. Definitely. And they're also altering the number of the times that the bank meets. And they, of course, have to announce a new deputy governor. What can you expect here? What's the lay of the land for the changes in the RBA? Oh, so there, there are so many. So the review of the Reserve Bank was a massive piece of work and there's still a lot of, I think we're starting to see now a lot more disagreement about what that actually means. And as I think I mentioned previously, the legislation's yet to come through on that. So when that happens, that's when I think we'll kick off this huge period of debate. That will probably happen post-voice referendum. So keep keep tuned for that one, basically. <laughs> it's probably going to be the rest of the year's uh, focus in the economy side. What we do know, and the things that are kind of less controversial, is that public communication piece. I think that's the way that most people are going to recognise the changes that are happening. So the big thing for the public is a drop in the number of meetings that are going to happen. So at the moment, we're really used to seeing 11 meetings a year. We all mm. get a nice New Year's break, which is very, very lovely. We're very <laughs> glad not to have a January, Tuesday meeting. Um, but now there's going to be eight. So there's going to be no April, July or October meeting either. And part of that is because, as we've seen this year, there are huge chunks of time where the Reserve Bank has a meeting and then they're just like, we're going to take a wait and see approach while we get more data and see what our previous yeah. actions have done. And But there's still this kind of frenzy about that monthly meeting. So I think that would actually help smooth the public debate a little bit. And I also think it'll be interesting to see whether or not in periods where there is really kind of hugely volatile inflation or something like that happening, whether that will mean bigger step changes at the fewer meetings. Will we see like a 50 basis point move rather than a 25 basis point move? I don't know, but I think that's going to be really fascinating. The other kind of public communication change in there is around the, I suppose, level of interaction that they have with the media, as you mentioned. So they're going to have more press conferences and they're going to be much more detailed in the notes that they put out after meetings, potentially saying, which, or like not naming names, but saying how many board uh, members were kind of supportive of a rate hike or rate cut or whatever. I think that'll be fascinating because as we've seen since uh, Dr. Lowe's tenure, there was that huge fury around the, you know, rates are going to be at record lows until 2024 until they're not sort of approach. And part of that does fall on the media and the way that it was reported as this kind of promise to the public when actually it was a central bank's forecast with a load of caveats put around it. I think this might actually help lift the public debate a little bit and some of the understanding about what kind of goes into those forecasts, the difficulties that they might face in um, those discussions that they're having behind the scenes and just letting, I think, letting the public into the tent a little bit more Mm. on that kind of level of conversation. So I'm really excited about that aspect. I think that that's going to be great for public transparency sure that they're a little nervous to be fronting the media after every after every uh, meeting, but ultimately I can only see good things from that particular change. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've addressed that point perfectly because there were these just blanket headlines that would come out. It, it kind of created this blunt instrument that was being communicated to the press. So this is, I didn't realise that this was going to be more communication and more detail in the hope to kind of address that. Definitely. And I, and I think um, to that point as well, there's There was a lot of, um, I think, post-COVID in particular and through all those lockdowns, there was just this habit from the media and from others to sort of send in reporters who potentially hadn't really covered interest rates before, hadn't hadn't been particularly used to looking at Reserve Bank forecasts, and they were just writing up headlines, pushing it out the door. And that comes back to our sort of... um, 
you know, the lack of reporters that we have in Australia as well, the lack of specialists. And I think that now that there is this kind of growing sense of, okay, there was clearly a mistake made from the Reserve Bank, but also from the media, everyone's sort of stepping up the game a little bit to look at the risks that are in those forecasts that are clearly laid out, but often like in not so exciting <laughs> terminology, <laughs> don't make for a great headline all the time. The RBA promises that interest rates won't go down until 2024, sort of, isn't the best headline <laughs> in the world, you know. So I think now that there is that bit of reflection happening, it will help everyone. And you did also mentioned that there is a deputy vacancy as well, deputy governor role. Now the government has to make that decision and then the RBA is going to make a decision about their head of economics team because Lucy Ellis left that role and has gone to Westpac. I think she starts as um, chief economist in maybe a couple of weeks. So that's Mm going to be really exciting to hear more from a former RBA person in a really prominent bank economist role. But the deputy vacancy one will be fascinating because it may be another internal role, but the current sort of media speculation is it might be an external person in that position, which would kind of offset that sense of the RBA life (laughs) and give us an additional perspective. So I think that that combination is going to be really critical to the future of the Reserve Bank. And we often do forget that there's more than one human in there and lots of different thoughts kind of make up the bank as a whole. So yeah, I'm I'm sort of curious about who might end up in in that position. Just one quick question at the end out of my own curiosity. You've mentioned two of the ex-RBA employees going on to other banking institutions. If you do choose to leave the RBA, is that where you often end up is in a major bank? It seems that way. I mean, it's curious because there was another RBA researcher, Peter Tulip. So he left, gosh, it would have been a couple of years ago now, to forgive my ailing memory on some of this, but it would have been a couple of years ago. And he actually ended up at the Centre of Independent Studies, where he's the chief economist there. I mean, there's only so many places that economists end up in terms of those roles. Guy DeBell's actually went on to Fortescue and he's recently left there to kind of pursue his more green ambitions. He really wants to help the green transition. So that's been really fascinating to see him kind of move through the corporate world. But yes, Lucy moving into the banking industry is fascinating. I haven't had a chance to properly speak with her to hash out exactly why that happened and what her goals and hopes are. I'm hoping that conversation happens soon. But it's, um, it is really interesting to see where people move on from the RBA and also the kind of expertise that they bring from sort of seeing behind the scenes in terms of monetary policy. But also, I mean, I guess if you're heading up the economics department and the forecasting, particularly through a period like COVID, uh, where everything was, you know, I, I've never seen charts like it in my entire life. Like you're, I'm pretty used to seeing economic charts. They come in and they kind of bounce along as expected. And then in COVID, everything just kind of plummeted to the floor <laughs> or went crazy up. And it was just like, how do you react to that? And I think that's a really unique perspective that people who are within the Reserve Bank right now or who've just left mm. will be able to take to those other institutions and the sense of how do policymakers respond? How do you respond in the, in the public interest? And it'll be interesting to see how the bank reacts to that kind of thinking. Jennifer, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, For people who are curious about your writing, where can they read where you're filing at the moment? Yes, we're at capitalbrief.com. It is paywalled some of it. So there is a a subscription offer. It's capitalbrief.com slash special dash access. And you can get a bit of a trial to see what we're all about. Um, Lots of of economics. There's some politics on there and plenty of like business startup finance space. Like it's it's really interesting, different sort of stuff to what people are used to seeing in in the press. So please come and read us. <laughs> we're, we're a new startup as well. So we're all learning about the new the new media landscape. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes as well Thank for anyone who's curious. Jennifer, thanks so much. And I hope to have you back on the dive very soon. I hope to be back. Thanks so much, Sasha. And we're going to leave it there for today. I want to give a shout out to Campbell Maffitt who jumped on Spotify and wrote, love these episodes, interesting, entertaining and useful. Keep them up. Campbell, thank you. We really appreciate all your feedback. So please 
keep it coming. I also want to extend a huge thank you to Jennifer from Capital Brief for appearing today. Hopefully we'll have her back again soon. I'll be back in your feeds on Wednesday. Until then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.